safe word, safe y'all. Safe word, y'all. Cutie pop, cutie y'all. pop, y'all. We out here to keep it going on the mic, y'all. On the mic, we y'all. We got the voices and the swagger that you need, y'all. Safe word is the place you want to be, y'all. It's, it's season, season three, three y'all. Okay, we are back for season three of Safe Word mm. Society. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of good things don't even make it past the first episode, so we out here. Um, I am Kristen, your host. Oh, my pronouns. Yeah. She, her, bad bitch, all that. Um, and I'm here with my co-host, Lamika. Hi, Lamika. So, hi. I'm so excited to be back on this mic. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and hers, and everything. I'm still doing everything. Yeah, that's good. Everything. Uh, and we are so excited about the guests we have here today. So we'll start with you. Tell the people who you are. Hi, I'm Roger Q. Mason, and my pronouns are he, him, his. And y'all know me, Ian Field yes. Stewart, they, them, there. Baby's in the building. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but Hi. today we're talking about a really cool play Ian brought to my attention because Ian knows all the things. Mm-hmm. Ian, I don't know, keep the ear to yeah, the streets. Where, where were we? I think we were at a dinner. Where were we? we? Had, we're socialites that, out here. Yes, I love it. Reservations. Um, yeah. And Ian's yeah. like, I have this really cool idea that I want to talk to you about. And pretty much within the first sentence, it's like, I'm down. I want to talk to Let me know. So we are here to talk about the white dress play. Yes, And we are. it premieres. You're from L.A. So I'm from L.A. And I'm here in New York. I got in yesterday. And the play premieres. Well, actually, our preview is November 2nd. Oh. Uh, and then opening night is November 3rd at 7.30. That's right around the corner. It is right around this corner, girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. How are you feeling? I am so excited. You know, we've been on this journey for about almost a year um, with applications to various opportunities to put up the show. And then this past spring, I was introduced to Aiden Walker, who's our director and co-choreographer through a mutual friend of ours, Kelvin Dinkins. And the two of us really bonded on the idea of gender identity and sort of the difference between sexuality and gender identity. And I brought Um, this play, The White Dress, to Aiden's attention. And all of a sudden, we couldn't stop talking. Um, Talked for at least two hours on the phone about the play and about what the world of the play is and the people that the play is speaking for and the people that have not been spoken for before this play. And then we got started on the work. And it's been a really exciting journey ever since then. I just love you saying, I brought this play to them. So you had this play just in your pocket or talk to us about the development of the play. So um, about two years ago, I had this one act. It was about 20 minutes long. And it was this piece about this older man who had inherited this chest from his mother. And in the chest was this white dress. And he started having all these flashbacks um, of his childhood with his mother and sort of the approval or disapproval of his gender expression as it related to that dress. And one of the things that was in that piece was we had these um, these baby blocks that we would move around to make different letters and, and different shapes, and they would sort of represent the themes of each scene. So it was this episodic sort of like theme, like birth, this, that. Mm. And so all of a sudden, I became more interested in the content of the flashbacks themselves than the actual present day, you know, older man looking back story. And so I started writing that play. And then I realized, okay, we don't need to really announce things with these blocks. We just need to do the play. And 
I was working on this piece and it, some folks brought to my attention the idea of Stasiunendramen. And let me just take y'all to Germany real quick. <laughs> so, I don't know if I want to go there, but all right. <laughs> no, all right. We're, we're, gonna go to, we're going to the cool part of Berlin. Okay, okay, I can go you. there. We're going, to, we're going to the cool part of that. Berlin. Okay, yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, Josephine Baker's in the house. Oh, very hey. good. Okay. Hey, boo. So, so, hey. So, um, Stasiunendramen uh, means station play in German and it's part of German expressionism so it's sort of a 1920s and 30s um, style of writing which essentially is about a character learning through the course of a theatrical journey about a particular ill in society and the plays are based on the, the stations of the cross so sort of the story of Jesus on the cross is the major structural um, element that defines the play. So they're usually 12 to 14 scenes. They're usually sort of the theme of man versus society. And they always end in this dystopic, but sort of educated tone. So they're about getting woke, basically. So I took that style and I said, okay, what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, we're stealing this structure. It's classic. It's the Bible. Hello. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden the structure of the play is done. And then I said, okay, well, I love the theme of sort of man and society. You know, what, what are the ills of society that, that prevent an individual from being their true and authentic selves? Right. And so we took that theme. And then we started playing with, okay, well, what does expressionism mean? It's this very heightened, sort of high contrast, externalized way of expressing the internal world. So for me, it was not only about very dramatic, um, but stark set and lighting that I had written specifically into the script. But it was also about dance for me because there were elements of this character's journey. Jonathan is the lead character. There are elements of his journey that I call the sublime. And that means to me the fact that they can't be described in language. So all he can do is just move, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that was what was really strong about Aiden is because Aiden is not only a theatrical director, but also a choreographer. So he's bringing in this process um, of sort of intimate moments that really are helping to define the character development of the unspoken in the piece. Oh, I love that. Um, that makes complete sense now when I'm thinking about Ian being involved, because I know mm-hmm. that form of expression is really important to you, Ian. Yeah, how, tell me how you got involved in the project. Um, so um, Adine and I have worked together on a show called Pin in the Blue Fairy, and I played uh, various characters in that show. And and so about a month and a half ago, I would say, right. um, a little maybe a little more than that, um, Adine just kind of called me and said, we are looking for someone to kind of help us with marketing the show and things like that and just wanted to bring me on. And I, I was kind of resistant because marketing is sounds like so capitalistic and gross. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound like me. I don't know. Like, we'll talk more. You know, I love you. I love working with you. And so the more that we talked, the more I kind of was like, okay, so here's what I would be willing to do. And I kind of came up with this idea that I would be willing to... Um, you know, I got in a call with with Roger and I said, you know, I'd be willing to kind of serve as a community partners consultant in which essentially I would be looking at, you know, how can I facilitate as as both an activist and a community organizer? How can I facilitate this process to where 
the word about the show is getting out, but it's getting out to the people who need to hear it. There are many um, aspects of my position with this yeah. show that have involved marketing styles and skills. But in your um, own way. But in my own way. And, right. and I think that that, and, and that was important for me because I think that especially as creators of color and particularly within the theater, which in some ways is one of the last bastions of like, you know, uh, white supremacy. And in mm -hmm. many, unfortunately, there's a lot of work to be done as, as far as um, shifting those narratives and, and, and like giving us opportunities to kind of say, this is the work that we want to do and this is how we're going to do it. And um, so Roger was very excited about that idea. And so kind of for the past few months, I've been uh, working with the show and I, you know, attend rehearsals. Um, Adina is very, a very collaborative director. Um, and has brought me in to like asking a lot of questions. I've been able to engage. I'm also facilitating all of the talkback experiences. So we're looking at different partners that we can partner with to kind of make this less, to kind of find out, you know, how can the audience not just like come and see a show, but, engage. but how, yeah, how can you engage? How right. can you, how can you take a sense of ownership and autonomy over the show? The important thing to remember about theater and, and, you know, talking about it as, as the last bastion, bastion of, of white supremacy. So that last great white hope is that it actually is an African and an Africanist mm -hmm. um, theatrical. It's an Africanist means of community building. Very much so. I think mm -hmm. about the the festival of Isis and Osiris, also known as Ast and Asar, in which people came during the springtime to recall the rememberment of um, Osiris's body after it is dismembered um, through jealousy. And this ritual of literally upper and lower Egypt coming back together and putting this body back together and in the process of putting that body back together, the community itself is returned whole. That reenactment is probably one of the first theatrically based community activities. And it's even acknowledged by the Greeks, by Herodotus, that the, the Greek understanding of theatron, the seeing place. Sorry, I'm just knocking on the table. <laughs> You're getting your point well, across. I'm in my moment. Yes. yes. It's but, for emphasis. Okay. Hello. <laughs> Emphaser, real quick. The point of the matter is this. Even the, the, the ancient Greeks in their history acknowledged that theatron, meaning the seeing place, or what we would later translate as the theater, was something that they had observed in the ancient Egyptians. So Ian's style of community engagement and the intersection between community partnership and marketing, to me, is exactly what this show needs as a show about queer people of color. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the style of marketing that's necessary for this show. We're bringing Upper and Lower Egypt back together. In this yes. case. In this case. <laughs> yeah. yes. Roger said, Ian, you the one. You the one. Come on, like, take that clip, put it on my website. <laughs> I'm bringing Egypt back together, girl. You the one, Ian. Let's bring you Egypt are the back one. together in yes. Midtown. Oh you have goodness. to rename you Neo. Girl. You are the one. Triple Leo, baby. We that brings me to another point. I'm and I'm glad that you guys brought up that segue because I'm wondering, theater now is a lot about access and privilege. Mm -hmm. right. So in developing a play, how do you become intentional and in putting it in a place where people can access it, but also profiting? I will, I will let Ian speak to ways and means, um, but I will speak to impulse. Yeah. I had spoken to a few marketing consultants before Ian. Mm hmm and, and I sat down with them on the phone and I said, how are you going to sell this show? 
And they were telling me the same story. You know, I'm going to do this e-blast and then we'll put it on these listings and that's it. I said, but how are you going to partner with the folks? Yeah. How are you going to get the people out? Well, uh, and the answer was always... Working on some things and we're doing some things. We're going to do something. We'll donate some tickets to to a housing. Donate some tickets to... Five tickets. I said, no, 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 no. How are you going to get the folks to come to the damn show? Yep. How are you going to get them on their own to want to be a part of this experience? Yes. So I said to Aiden, I said, listen, I need you to find me somebody because I, I don't understand what, what these other marketing folks are doing. And that, that's not the show. Yeah. So I got on the phone with Ian and it was just like you said, well, you know, I don't really do that. <laughs> and then you started talking about, well, let's partner with, with this center and let's get these podcasts and then let's reach out to this community um, organized. And I said, you understand that you just marketed the show verbally. In this phone call. <laughs> you do understand that. Now, whether that was sort of a, an employment campaigning tactic on your part. <laughs> oh, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. But you know, listen to this. But listen to this here. <laughs> or whether, like you're saying, there was a genuine apprehension about engaging in the capitalistic exactly. version of marketing. And then you and I realized that we were creating a different event. Who knows? You know? Mm. But the point is, we in this now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And beautifully so. And I think we are gearing up for a very, very sold out run of this piece next week. So um, I think people really, and and we're going to plug it again, but I'm going to do the mid, the mid talk plug. (laughs) People really need to get tickets. I'm not kidding you all because this thing is going to be full and we only have 99 seats and they will be gone, hunty. They they will be gone. Mm -hmm. In love. Yes. How? Ways and means. Ways and means. Um, I mean, I think that first of all, it is that it is that thing of, um, of realizing that the, the work that you're going to do has to be on your own terms and within your own understanding of what the work is. I mean, I, as I'm sitting here, I'm kind of realizing the ways in which, you know, that conversation is this replication of, right? Like, you know, I know what theater is to me. I know what its origins are. It's everything, you know, it's, it's Egypt, girl. You know, it goes back all the way there. And yet the way that we educate people in the theater both in marketing theater and both in like the business of theater and in the art of theater. We've stolen, or we, they have stolen so much of what the theater is in its origin and is, is in its truth. And so I think that that is kind of the first step is realizing that, okay, what I'm going to do is going to be different. It's not going to look like anything else. I wasn't taught this in a theater class. I was taught this like amongst my community, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, so I think that that's kind of the first step is understanding that it's like your community is going to tell you what your community needs and you have to go there first. I think that other ways of doing it, I'm I'm learning as I go, you know, I think that it's also understanding, tap on your friend's shoulders and just say, hey, by the way, you know, we here, we out here, we doing this. And, and to prioritize those folks and to center them and to say, this is a partnership. It's about, you know, you know, there, there are realities that we have to work with as far as like, oh, like it needs to get out at a certain point so people can come and see the show. But saying that, you know, how can this also benefit you? How can we be uplifting each other as we do this work? And yeah. It's so, it's so new, but it's, it's, it's important to do. I had a conversation um, earlier this week talking about career stuff. And I just point blank asked this, this person. I said, I said, do you think I got a, um, a chance at making it in life? I just said that. <laughs> wow. I said, do you think I have a chance at making it? And he said, 
absolutely because you have a story to tell. And as long as there's a story to tell, there are going to be people that want to hear it. We did a reading of the white dress in um, January here in New York at as part of the Fire This Time Festival. What's that? The Fire This Time. Ooh, let me just do this plug real quick. Yes, drop the gems. Okay, okay. first of all, hey, AJ Muhammad. Hey, Kevin R. Free. How y'all doing? So <laughs> the, white, uh, the white dress was part of a reading festival um, called the Fire This Time Festival. It is an incubator for emerging playwrights of color. Oh, wow. So a lot of people have actually gone through this program, uh, either as writers or as actors. It, it, the shows are at the Crane Theater, and it's a lot of folks uh, like Cord Tuttle was um, part of my year. Um, I believe Dominique Morceau mm. um, is one of the earlier alums of this program. Angelica Cherie, who's here in town wow. um, with a show that she's doing um, some songs uh, with her uh, writing partner at Lincoln Center now. That's my girl. Hey, Ange, how you doing, girl? <laughs> um, she's in town. I love it. Ange is here. Um, and so a lot of us working, you know, people of color in the theater, have come through this program. It's sort of a rite of passage. So what happens is it's two years. The first year you write a short play and it gets a three week run. Um, and so the piece that I wrote that year, that was, that was about two years ago was called hard palette. And it was a, um, here we go with these abstractions. (laughs) It was a, it was a three person play, um, about a Tinder date that went terribly wrong. Oh, now they do that. Now, okay, <laughs> but you see, this dates the play because it was I was still on that Tinder tip. So, what happens in the play is the um, the lead finds out that the um, that that his love interest is HIV positive, and so all of a sudden it goes from this sort of banter type, you know, liminal space. You know, sometimes they're on the phone, sometimes they're you know on different sides of the stage, sometimes they're together. Um, in this play to all of a sudden this existential space where homophobia, um, germophobia, sort of HIV stigmatization, all of these things devolve the character. And the source of this is a third character called Brooke Shields, who's the voice of, (laughs) who's the, who's the, the, uh, the voice of hypochondria. So, so it's this round between the three of them and it's meant to be, you know, a choral trio round with this three, three voices. And sometimes they're two person scenes. Sometimes it's monologue. And sometimes it's those three voices all fighting for this one person's head. So we did that. So a lot of the sort of devices of inner monologue that started in hard palette that I was playing with in that 10 minute play, I brought back and expanded on them for the white dress. So we did Hard Palette two years ago, and it was nominated for um, a Theater Innovator Award for Best Short. Congratulations. Yes, so that was, so I was back here like. Shameless Talk, I've also been nominated for that award. Yes, Yes. <laughs> the great sit together. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so then I came back this past January for my second year. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, you do in the second year, a reading of a full length play. So we did the reading of this play and Adam Hindman um, from Aladdin, also a classmate of mine from Princeton, went uh, and did the reading because it was Monday night. That's right. The bitch is educated. Wait, what? 
I went to Princeton for undergrad, and then I did my MFA at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Yes. We also have we also have a dean who is a Princeton yeah, alum, uh, Stanley, yeah. who's a Princeton alum, who plays Jonathan. So like, <laughs> very much in the house. So basically, we did that. We did that reading with Adam, and this young woman from Columbia came up to me, and she was crying after the show, and um, just a reading, and she said, "You told my story." And she said, I have a sister, she's, she's M to F, and I never thought that somebody would understand her the way mm. that you have understood that life. And I just want to thank you. And so I took that as an omen that we were doing the right thing. Yeah, mm, absolutely. We were doing the right thing by developing this play. And this was an early draft of the play. Child, I just heard it's an hour and 40 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. This thing was 65 minutes, boo-boo. <laughs> so we got them at 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we had, them, we had them on the floor. People could not speak after this thing. And so I applied to a program called the Araka Project this past year, mm-hmm. um, which is for young theater entrepreneurs who are interested in producing in um, New York. And so I got... The I got the gig. Congratulations. So, thank you. And so that's how we're doing this piece. Uh, also, I'm going to pause because I need to also provide some context for the Araka group. The Araka group has also produced like many, many Broadway shows that you would know. Like, um, I don't want to, I'm not going to remember them all right now, but I'm pretty sure Jersey, Jersey Boys is one of them. Yes. Like, Jersey Boys is one of them. I want to say. Avenue Q, Avenue Q is one of their, like, one of their projects. So like, so this is a big yes, deal. Yeah, so that you, like this queen yes. kind of skated over it, but I <laughs> Rod, just yeah, Roger just tried to slide Roger, by it. Roger's well, doing I, big you stuff. Know, this is a big thing. It's yeah. it's a very big thing, but the funny thing is when you're inside of it. Yep. Oh, I know. You know, when you're inside of it, you're just trying to meet your production yep. manager and so that you can it. so that yeah. you so that you guys can get the van to get to Home Depot. Yep. That's where you are. <laughs> like that's literally yes. where you are. Yep. Like, the other stuff, and you want to make sure that your staff and your cast feel loved and appreciated. That's really where you are because morale is your best friend mm-hmm. and lack of morale is your worst enemy in a show. You know, I'm from LA. So how in the hell I was able to put this together by coastally over the last year is nothing short of a miracle and nothing short of a, a proof positive that folks are in this because they want to be. Mm-hmm. They are doing this project because it is speaking to their spirits and they are doing something that that is filling a need. That's why they're coming. I'm not there minding the store watching them. <laughs> they're coming on their own, honey. Mm-hmm. They're showing up and they are delivering and they are dedicated. I will tell you this. I have not seen a team as dedicated as engaged, as invested, as creatively inspiring mm-hmm. as this group here that's doing the white dress. My God, somebody needs to call the public theater <laughs> today. Please. Is that your experience too, Ian? And working oh, from working from the the side that you're on? It's been really a smooth and wonderful process. Um which like I think everyone wants to say, I, it really has been. It mm-hmm. just it's it's been wonderful and exciting, and um, I think that kind of one of the things that I was sort of the most nervous about when I first was signing on to the project was that I was asking a lot of questions about okay, so why are we telling this story, and why are the people who are telling this story telling this story? And Roger is a cis guy, and and I'm sitting here like okay, well we've had a lot of conversations about you know cis people who tell you know trans stories, and I was like okay, what are we gonna do here? 
And I think that the reason that I love this play so much is that it is the first play that I've seen where the conversation that occurs about gender and gender expression is not about, let's talk about trans people or let's talk about cis women, you know, which all of those, all of those elements are present within the play and really centered in, in the center of the play. But it asks each of us to really confront how we are engaging with gender. I think that if we, you cannot walk into this show and walk out of it without, without kind of beginning to question how you yourself are relating to this construct that we've developed around gender. And I think that everyone in the room has been so, so dedicated to that conversation. And I think that it's, it's also interesting because the role that Stanley, um, Jonathan, uh, our lead, mm -hmm. is playing, Mathabane, it could be played by a trans person. It could be played by a cis person. And both are equally valid interpretations of the character. And neither allows us to question any less sort of how the, this construct is developed within each of our lives. Mm. I think it's such a beautiful show. I think that um, to walk into the room and have two members of the cast who are white, only one of those white folks is cis. It's just exciting. The rest of the cast is all people of color who identified along different points of the spectrum. The creative team also is filled with people of color and trans folks who are working on this production to make it exciting and everything that it can be. And I think that, that that really, you can feel the difference. You can feel the difference when you walk in the room. And honestly, whenever I've been involved in a process that is like centered around people of color, it's always the smoothest process mm. because we just do things better. Makes a huge difference. You bring, up two, <laughs> you bring up two really interesting points. One of Aiden's major projects when um, forming the team for this, both um, the creative team as well as the cast, was he said, we must have queer and trans folks at the center of this team. This team must intentionally and deliberately be majority LGBTQIA folks. If not, it won't work mm -hmm. because it has to be the people that know and are invested in this type of storytelling. So that was one thing. The other thing that I wanted to say was on the topic of how gender is talked about. It's talked about by not talking about mm -hmm. it. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a queer person of color. You know, I've got 99 problems and a queer one ain't hey, Hello. Hello. Yes. Hello. You know, I don't sit up and have queer thoughts and queer exactly. projects. And eat queer breakfast. And eat queer breakfast <laughs> and do queer yoga. Exactly. And drink queer water. Uh, I mean, so the yes. thing is, the, so just like Aiden had intentional decisions I also had yeah. intentional decisions. What I tried to do as a tactic of storytelling is to deliberately not label or have a character announce their gender identity within the piece. How long can we hide the ball before they actually have to say anything? I don't think any of the characters in the play actually discuss in a very explicit way. Discuss. Yeah. Now they act. And they live and they strive on that stage, but they ain't gonna sit and talk about it. Here's one thing I cannot stand, and you see this all over the place. I'm so ready for this read. Me too. <laughs> the park and bark, mm -hmm. where these mm -hmm. damn writers get up here and sit the fuck down. They mm -hmm. have these characters sit the fuck down and talk about it, mm -hmm. whatever it is, mm -hmm. whatever the topic is that's their 
big point. They just sit and talk about it. This ain't no radio play. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Reading. These yes. are people, these are, listen, many years ago, I got the best lesson of my life from Joseph Harper, who was my middle and high school drama teacher. He said, Roger, acting is someone doing something somewhere. Now that doesn't just apply to acting. That very much applies to writing. You know, writing has to be someone doing something somewhere. Language is in fact your very last tactic. Mm. Language mm. is in fact the last storytelling tool mm. that you use. Mm. It's not the first, it's the last. Mm -hmm. It's the it's like what Hitchcock said. Just sprinkle a couple of words on top at the end. Mm -hmm. But it really has to be about dramatic action. It has to be about characters doing something somewhere. And that's the difference, I think. So, yes, there's a political aspect to why I didn't, you know, specifically sit down and talk about gender identity. But there's also a craftsmanship-based reason for why. I think it's more active to just watch people doing and striving mm -hmm. And let that be a mirror onto your own life mm. and your own expression rather than sitting here and me talking to you. We ain't got time for these TED Talks. <laughs> so as I'm listening to you, <laughs> I'm so confused by you asking the question, how do you think you're going to make it in life? This is why I ask it. Make it. But before you, before you proceed, <laughs> I just want you to own. Okay. Everything that has already happened for you and I everything that's happening now, because it sounds to me and I'm sure the people around the table would agree that you've mm -hmm. made quite a bit. You know, here's what I have to say about that. I stand in infinite gratitude for the people who have believed in me. Mm. I graduated from Princeton in 2008 in the height of the recession. Mm -hmm. A lot of the grants and a lot of the internships and a lot of the fellowships for theater artists of color had dried up with yep. the housing bust. Mm -hmm. I watched many a person graduate from Princeton in 2005, 6, and 7 and shoot straight to the moon. Partially, I believe, because they had gotten the early professional boosts from these internships and these fellowship programs. Mm -hmm. I also watched a lot of folks between 2005 and 2008 while I was active at Princeton go across the street to McCarter Theater and work in their internship program. And then from there, go to New York and start making a life for themselves. 2008, that was not the reality mm -hmm. at all. I graduated. I applied to the McCarter Theater Internship Program, and I thought, well, I'm just going to be the next one. And I got in there, and a very dear woman named Grace Shackney, she called me into her office. Grace is very gracious to me. She said, I did not have the heart to write you a rejection letter. I had to tell you in person. I'm very sorry, but I cannot take you this year because our funding for that type of programming is limited. And so we're going to have to take some folks that are coming with some funding. I think it was a Rockefeller grant or something that, you know, was helping to subsidize. And that goes back to the issue of arts funding and, yep. and, and the politics of arts funding or the lack mm -hmm. of arts funding. But that particular meeting on that particular day was very somber for Grace and for me because she wasn't able to provide it. And so I said, okay, 
where do I go next? And I actually, I asked Mm -hmm. Grace, I said, where do I go from here? And she said, go home. Go home and find yourself. And when you're ready, you'll be back. I'm back, y'all. Yes. (laughs) I'm back, y'all. It took me 10 years to really find myself because the thing is, external factors and internal Mm -hmm. factors can delay you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're out here, you're a queer writer of color. You didn't know that at the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So first you got to work through that. Mm -hmm. What is this? Who am I? Yep. You know, I came out to my dad when I was 28 years old and it was by accident, child. (laughs) It was by accident. We can get into that if you want. I'll give the safe space version. (laughs) But I came out at 28 years of age. So it was, that was really, I mean, that was really the point. That was three, almost four years ago. That was really when I started understanding myself. So you're going to give us this tea or no? Oh, you want me to spill it? (laughs) Well, okay, here's the tea. I was coming home from a liaison. Mm. Mm. What a lovely way of putting Look, it. I was coming home on an Uber. <laughs> Writer. I, I came home on an Uber from a liaison. And, um, and I was still drunk from the evening's um, activities. Intoxicated. <laughs> well, in, in many ways. In many ways. Mm. Yes. And... Um, I'm on Child. the floor. We're over here. I'm on the floor. I kind of want to hear about that. <laughs> you know what? Lamika, that's the after party. You know what? That night. Uh, what I will say is this. I came home and, you know, sometimes uh, men will do that thing where they miss the mark on the um, <gasps> on the, the seat you know <laughs> especially if they're if especially if, if they're intoxicated if they're intoxicated <laughs> and and if their judgment <laughs> and their equilibrium is is a little bit off <laughs> and um, you know I, I live in a Filipino household my mother's Filipino my dad is black and Irish mm-hmm. so everybody lives there mm-hmm. so I <laughs> so True I life okay let's get real. So I have a suite mate, you know, it's, the, there's a bathroom and then there are two bedrooms and in the middle is the bathroom. And my suite mate is my brother. Well, he knew what was going on because he, uh, paid for the Uber to send me home. <laughs> Shout out to your brother. Yes. Hey brother Homer, how you doing? <laughs> so Brother Homer, please come to the table. <laughs> oh, so brother Homer, um, knew I was coming home. I came, you know. Swaggered into the house, came, missed the mark, went back to bed. And all of a sudden, this this roar. God damn it, I've told you not to do that shit. If you do this shit again, I'm going to take this seat off and put it on your fucking bed. In fact, and then he starts taking the seat off. I don't know where your fucking dick has been. Actually, yes, I do. I just brought it home. (laughs) Out here doing all this shit in this room. And he starts ranting on and on and on and on about all, you know, his imaginings of what the evening was like in very explicit terms, Mm -hmm. biologically specific terms. Now, meanwhile, my dad's downstairs making oatmeal. So I'm like, oh, Lord, who's home? I didn't know. So turned white. Because all of a sudden I, I, I realized, oh God, I've just been outed. And so I go downstairs and he's there and he's still stirring. And he says, well, I didn't want to disturb y'all's brotherly conversation, but that was juicy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dad, though. And Papa, I, 
Come on through. Homer, Homer Mason Sr. in the house. Yes. And I just cannot speak. Because, you know, okay, now there are many ways that this yeah. this can go. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so which version... You don't know the, if you're going to have to pack a bag. Right, right. So which version are we going to be playing out today? Mm-hmm. Which which version of black masculinity mm-hmm. are we going to be having to Ooh. reckon with today? Mm-hmm. Yes. He says, I had suspected it before, but now I know. And then he just pours the oatmeal, and that's that. And so it was very quiet. And no one said anything. Meanwhile, I leave. Of course, I scamper out. I don't know where I went, but I I went somewhere. And Homer Jr. and Homer Sr. have been fucking talking all damn day about, well, I told you he went, I knew his ass was and this, that, and the other. And they've come to this conclusion that what they have to do is accept it. Now, let me tell you what my version, my dad's version of accepting it means. We're at a party the next week, and I guess I'm staring at some guy. He says, oh, I know if, if I wasn't sitting here, you'd run away with him and wouldn't come home till tomorrow. Go on, ask him. And I'm like, okay, I wish that was my queer life, that I was just this, <laughs> this, this fabulous, like, queerest folk. What was that lead's name on queerest folk with oh, the black Ra- hair? Ra- Brian. You know Brian. who I'm talking Brian. Brian. Brian Kinney. I wish I was Brian Kinney, that I just had the look of gold, and all of a sudden I got anything I wanted. But he, and every time he'd talk about, I, I know, you know, I know it must be difficult for you out here. And I'm like, whoa, where is this empathy coming from? So all of a sudden he starts getting into it. So now, he, and I think he was genuinely, this was two years ago, he was genu- genuinely trying to understand. Right. Mm-hmm. He was just really trying to understand what who, it was like for you, who he had raised. Yeah. And how he had missed this or suppressed it, you know, all this time. And so, of course, you know, there's certain elements of that sort of journey to Mm -hmm. empathy that are, I'm sure, influences on the white dress. Absolutely. I was just, well, I was just about to say is that one of the most fascinating relationships in the show is the relationship between the father and Jonathan. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, I I don't want to give away the show at all. I really had to grapple with so much in reading the show and looking at, you know, just ways that like, you know, that fathers and children like interact and specifically the role that fathers have. And this is, and this is such, it's such an interesting relationship because it's so complicated. It's not black and white. And for me, you know, having only had very problematic relationships with fathers, like it was very, it was very easy for me to see one side of it. And what's been so fascinating to watch in this process, watching Adine direct, watching Don Patrick Simeon, who is playing um, Theo, the father and watching um, Jean Patrick and Stanley interact and the ways that they are cultivating this relationship to be something that is so complicated. You know, I think that one of the one of the most fascinating things that we see kind of is this moment where almost an introduction to femininity and to this expression of femininity is comes through Theo rather than the mother, which is something that I could not, I was like, how could this be possible? That doesn't right. even make any sense to me. And it's so fascinating to watch. Second sh- mid-show plug, you got to come see the show. Get but your that tickets, level y'all. of nuance is it. only possible yeah. when people from the community Absolutely. are actually involved. It is yeah. really, a, it is an amazing, an amazing portrayal of black fatherhood that is complicated, nuanced, and, and, and wonderful. You got to come see it. You know, um, you're talking about what, what I always called the closet scene. You know, mm. we, we, we take, there's an element of, of, of camp involved because, mm. okay, all right, someone's going to come out of the closet. And so you, you know, you know, that's always looming in the background of a gay show. But what we've done is we've actually 
taken the closet as a space and we've used it as a, as a con- confessional space mm. and a place of revelation. And yeah. um, all I will say about this moment is that... You have to see it. You have to see it. And in this particular scene specifically, there are two characters. We start with two characters, Theo, the father, and Jonathan, the son. And we end with Mary and Alice. Hmm. Oh, wow. And and the transformation from Theo and Jonathan to Mary and Alice is... To me, it's one of the scenes that was from that original play. One of the one of the scenes that I wrote about two years ago. I said I finally know where to start with this play. Isn't that a moment? That scene, that the closet scene, was one where I really understood where I was starting with this play. And when you can find that scene, sometimes you end up throwing that scene away, you know, by the way, you end up, it becomes a building block and then all of a sudden you, it served its purpose and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it stayed. And I said, you know what, this is, and it's right about in, at the end of act one. So it's sort of like a very foundational um, scene early in the, in the play that establishes a lot of the themes that we're dealing with and a lot of the interactions that come from that scene. But you know, talking about black fathers and talking about um, a sort of masculine identity, there's something in the show about wanting to fly away. Mm. You know, mm. there's a certain point at which uh, Theo says, sometimes I just want to fly away. And and I think he's talking about responsibility, not just to his family, but, but also to what it means to have to mm-hmm. be a, a man and a black man mm-hmm. and a black professional. He just wants to fly away. And just be him, you know? And um, I think part of what the show is trying to do is is help people fly away. It's it's trying to help people shed a lot of the obligatory Mm -hmm. skins that they're having to wear because the world has told them so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. There's, I mean, going off of that, I really just wanted to also mention, because this is one of the most interesting conversations I think we've had during the process. And this is actually where we really really saw i mean adine adine as a as a white cis gay man has talked about you know because i'm telling a story or helping to tell a story that is not an identity i share with i see myself as a director of being more of an editor and kind of like letting other people tell me and i kind of help them to tell that story which is so important wow. and i think that one of the moments allyship in the process, 101 <clears throat> Advocacy 101, accomplice 101, Thank you know? and also dramaturgy um, 101. A hell of a, a hell of an editor. Story. I mean, yeah. phenomenal yeah. editor. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. But one of the most important moments when this occurred during the show was that we were talking about um, we were talking about you know the character of Theo and and the and like you know everyone's talking you know oh well like you know he's closeted he's like coming out and all that stuff and I I kind of just I was like one moment is he closeted or is he on the DL. And let's talk about the difference. And they kind of were like, oh, well, is there, like, you know, the white folks in there were kind of like, oh, well, is there a difference? And I said, absolutely there's a difference. Right. Because black culture specifically, as, a, as someone who is, like, particularly a recipient of a lot of this attention, coming from men who are on the DL but not in the closet, like, men who are on the closet are interested in a very different type of person than men who are on the DL. Mm-hmm. Because men who are on the DL have a very, it, there's a certain culture around that. And yeah. kind of explaining that difference and seeing how, like, white people were really 
struggling to understand that because one, one, I feel like we have to do so much work, first of all, to destigmatize the closet because mm-hmm. I think there's a big difference between someone being in the closet and someone minding their own business. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, th- and th- that distinction is not allowed within white culture, mm. you know? And, and I think that that has been, and that was something that was so important to have in the conversation. I don't want to go much further into it because that'll be part of one of my talkbacks. And also, <laughs> and also you got to come see the show, but I just to like sit in that room and have that conversation and to watch the black folks in the room, specifically the black men who were in the room, totally understand what I was saying. And to watch the white folks in the room having to really grapple with this idea was so fascinating and indicative of the show that Roger has created, the process that the white folks in the room have committed to, and the importance of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. We talked about all of this stuff <laughs> in partnerships, and I happen to know <laughs> that you have partnered with a certain designer that the community <laughs> loves <laughs> for yes, an opening night surprise. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about who and what that is? Yes. Um, this this designer, Chris Herring, I don't, I, mean, I don't know if you like would know who that person is. I, but, I think um, I might. I may have heard of them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, she's going to be providing um, a garment for us. Uh, so throughout the process, we've been kind of pushing this hashtag my white dress. And so if you go to um, at white dress play on Instagram, you can kind of see photos of the cast and creative team as well. And what I had them do was that each of us, I had the answer the question, what is your white dress? And so a lot of them would come to be like, but what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. What does it mean? You know, of course, because I'm annoying. And so each of them kind of talked about what their white dress is. And so the, the idea is that Chris is going to be providing a garment for us that the audience will be able to try on before the performance, take a selfie in, and then, you know, post like their white dress story. And it's just a way of us understanding kind of, you know, what are our white dresses in society? What are our white dresses to ourselves? And people have answered it in so many different ways. You know, Roger answered it as kind of the white dress being a symbol of freedom. I answered the question of the white dress being kind of the things that I'm like working to get out of. Someone mm-hmm. else has answered it as the things that inspire them. And it's like, I think that's what's so beautiful about the show is that anything, it can be anything to you and so we wanted to create a physicalization of this white dress of this garment for folks to try on and explore for themselves and so that is going to be available um in the lobby both before and after the show and i hope that people will take advantage of it and i and i think that it's a really interesting thing to just take time and reflect on and uh yeah that's kind of that's one of the many things we've got set up for y'all it's interesting that you talk about the the flexibility and the pliability of the white dress because That's actually, you guys picked up on something that's very much in the design of the script. Um, There is no one white dress in the play. In fact, at some point, there were no white dresses in the play at all. Um, I was working with Rebecca Gilman, um, who is my advisor on this project. And she said to me, you know what, whatever you do, never, never, never pinpoint one thing that the white dress means. Mm. Always let it mean something different to a different person. Always let it take on different meanings and let characters have different relationships to it because it has to be fluid. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I can run with that. Everyone in the show has their white dress and some of them are not white and some of them are not dresses, you know, but... Each person has in the show their own relationship to what that means. Mm, And I think it grows and evolves and ebbs and flows very much like they do in the show as they continue to identify and learn how to identify themselves. That's really the point of the show. 
So when you came up with this campaign, my white dress, hashtag my white dress, mm -hmm. just another plug. So when you came up with this campaign, I thought it was brilliant because it, it sort of took me back to the writer's room when I was sitting there in Rebecca's office two years ago. And she said, don't let it be one thing for everyone. Let it be everything for everyone. I'm beyond excited to see this show. I know. It, just, <laughs> it feels like home. Yeah. This is exciting. How do you take something that seems so abstract and so obscure and so foreign and yet make it seem like home? Yeah. And the way you do it is you invest in the human. Yeah. Everyone wants to fly. Everyone wants to breathe. Everyone wants to be in love. Everyone wants to be told they're beautiful. These are the things that all human beings want. Those are the ties that bind. That's the blood that flows through our veins as a collective. So that's where we start. You know, that's what we're bringing. We're bringing that blood, the lifeblood. Where, where are we getting this blood? Where am I getting this lifeblood? I need some lifeblood. Where do we collect? <laughs> All right. Okay. So let me break this down for you. You go to thewhitedressplay.com, click tickets. There's also a ticket link on the homepage. Buy tickets. The show is November 2nd, 3rd and 4th at 7.30 p.m. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 7.30 p.m. And it is Sunday at 2 p.m. The theater is the American Theater of Actors in Midtown. If you want to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, um, it's White Dress Play um, on both platforms. And uh, essentially on Instagram, you're just going to see kind of behind this. If you follow our Insta story, you'll see lots of like behind the scenes shots of what we're doing in the creative room and uh, in the rehearsal spaces. Twitter is also just going to be giving you more information and more insights into kind of what the process is. And what would be your best advice for your younger self? Don't overthink it. Yes. Mm. Trust in what you got. Mm. Mm. At that moment, whatever it is at that moment, that's what you got and trust in it. Mm. It'll, it may grow, it may lessen, it, per day it's going to change and that's good. But just trust in whatever you got that day. Trust in what you got and don't overthink it. Yeah. Just do your thing. Lucas. I'm so happy to be on these mics again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what, how is this our first episode back? This is amazing. I'm so excited for the show. I'm also very excited for everyone to see Chris's piece. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's going to be sure, fabulous. Make sure you come out and see that. Make sure you try it on and make sure you let us know what your white dress is. Yeah. Can people my, hashtag my white dress from home? Absolutely. All right. So can hashtag my white dress let um, everyone know what it means to you. Buy tickets to the show. Support the community. We need to be mm -hmm. sold out. Sold, sold out. Sold out. out it's already happening. I feel it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Thank you guys Bye. so much Bye. for being here. For coming and Lamika. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I going? I don't know. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. This is Kristen and this is Lamika. And you've just listened to another episode of the Safe Word Society podcast. You can hear more of us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and much more. For updates, follow us on social media at Safe Word Society and visit our website at www.safewordsociety.com. Also, make sure you pay it safe and become a Safe Word Society patron in order to fund this show. Thank, Thank you for, for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.